If you have a Bible, open to the book of John, John chapter 13. Uh, So we're going to be kind of bouncing around to a couple different texts this morning, but John 13 is kind of the main place where we're going to be. So uh, I don't expect you to jump all over the place with me. So if you're taking notes, maybe just kind of jot some of these things down and you can go back and look at them later. If you know at least one person in life, uh, then there is a pretty good chance that you know what it's like to be betrayed. Unfortunately, it's a really common experience as a human to be betrayed. I even see it in uh, my kids. So in our home, uh, we have a rule. Um, it's, it's actually kind of more of a rule with me. Everybody else kind of uses it as a strongly worded suggestion, but it's a rule nonetheless uh, that we don't eat on the couch in the living room. We, do, we don't eat snacks on there. It's not the place where we eat. So you can eat at the counter. You can eat at the table. We don't eat in the living room on the couch. But it's not uncommon for me to come downstairs and walk into the living room and to see uh, my kids in the living room eating snacks, eating Cheetos, on the couch. In fact, the other day, walk downstairs, I see my 10-year-old daughter Vera, my 8-year-old son Silas, covered in Cheeto dust on the couch in the living room. I said, guys, what are we doing? We know how I feel about this. We know what the rule is. We're not supposed to be eating, let alone Cheetos. We're not supposed to be eating on the couch in the living room. And in that moment, my 10-year-old daughter says, Silas got it out of the pantry. And Silas would go, what, huh, no, huh, what, no? Betrayal all over him. And if only betrayal were like always that childish, and if, if only it was always that easy to get over, but the reality is, is that many of us in the room, we've been betrayed. And maybe it's been with our, in a relationship, in our family, in a business deal, we're going to see a couple things this morning just as we, as we look at this person, Judas. Uh, and we're going to see first that there, there's a betrayer in all of us. There's a betrayer in all of us. And then we're going to see that Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. He's the suffering Savior. He's empathetic. He knows what it is. He knows what the, the human experience is. He's experienced it like we have And then lastly, we're going to see how Jesus responds to us in our betrayal. And we're going to start looking at this person, Judas. Now, you might not be totally familiar with the Bible. You might not be totally familiar with the story of Jesus. But you probably know that Judas is one of the figures from the Bible that we're really not supposed to kind of model our lives after. You might not know the full story, but you at least know, okay, Judas is really not one of the good guys in the Bible. So there's lots of kids who have Bible names. There's Matthews and there's. John's and there's Thomas and there's Paul. Not a lot of Judas. You don't meet a lot of Judas kids. But we got to be careful because we can quickly fall into this trap thinking that there isn't a potential Judas in all of us. And since not everybody is familiar with the story, I'm going to kind of back out, zoom out a little bit from John and try to give you a picture of what Judas is all about. In Matthew chapter 26, Matthew tells us a little bit about this character, Judas. So you can turn there if you want to the left, or you can just kind of hold your place in John, write down Matthew 26. We'll put the text up on the screen for you. It says this, then one of the 12, who the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you. 
So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, and from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. A couple things now. Commentators have a lot of different thoughts on why Judas actually betrayed Jesus. Uh, some say that he was trying to force Jesus' hand, like he was actually trying to get Jesus to do this political takeover. Like he, they were expecting Jesus to be this uh, kind of political leader, and he was just not moving fast enough. So Judas thought he could kind of force his hand if he betrayed him, that then Jesus would rise up and be the political leader that, they, that he expected him to be. Some commentators say that at this point, Point, Judas is just disillusioned with Jesus. Maybe he, he, he at one time believed he was the Messiah, but he doesn't anymore. Some think that he was just kind of hedging his bets because he's like, okay, well, there's no way Jesus is going to win this fight between the religious elite and, and, and him and his followers. And we don't really know for sure. Um, and maybe it was a combination of all those things. But from this text here, the clear motivation is greed. Judas sells Jesus out for money. It's, a, it's about $25. 30 pieces of silver was the price that you would pay for a wounded slave. Like if there was a slave that had been like gored or injured by an animal, that was the price that you would pay. That was, that's what they, they paid for Jesus. And again, the primary thing that we want to see about Judas before we start to pass judgment on him is that you and I are him. We've got to be able to acknowledge that there is in us a potential to have something go through our hearts and our minds that says to the world, what will you give me if I actually walk away from the things of Jesus? What can I trade out if I trade Jesus? It could be that you've been following Jesus for a few years and you thought it was going to be easier. You thought by this time you'd have more success. You thought, if I followed Jesus, I thought I'd have more friends, maybe more money. I just, you just thought you'd have more, and you don't like where it's going. It's not easy. And so we start to look to the world, and we say, what will you give me if I trade out Jesus? It's not just a Judas problem. It's a me problem. It's a you problem. Because every day we do this, we look at the things of the world, and we think, what will you give me? Will you give me more money? Will you give me more pleasure? Will you give me more fun? Will you give me a way where I can have rule and reign over my own life? Will you give me a way where I don't have to push against the stream or the pull of culture? I could just go with the flow. I could just do whatever I want to do. If I trade out Jesus, can I have that kind of life? We're faced with that all the time. I've had people who have come to me from time to time, and they'll say things to me like, you know, I'm successful in business. You know, you, Paul, you can communicate. It seems like you got a little bit of leadership. You know, you could make a lot of money in business. And I have no idea if that's true, but it does from time to time tug at my heart and tug at my mind. Now, there's nothing wrong with business. We believe all of life is all for Jesus. We have a theology that, 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 that's, that's big enough to encompass that, and there's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with money. Having those things, not evil. We get evil when those things have us. But set that aside. For me, in this season of the life that I'm in, at least for the last 18 years of my life, what God has called me to is ministry in a local church, to be a pastor. And it's not that this vocation is sacred and others are secular because we don't believe that at all. We believe that all vocations are kingdom callings for Christians. For me in particular, it's about my heart. It's about my motivation. 
And so when a potential opportunity like that comes along, when somebody kind of says that to me, what it starts to stir up in my heart, what it starts to stir up in my flesh are, are things like, well, you know, if you did that, you would have a lot less discouraging emails to answer. You know, if you, if you did that, you won't have everybody criticizing you for what you say or make judgments about you or question all the decisions you make. You might, you might even get some more money. You might have some more stuff. You might have some more influence. And I got to stop because, yeah, yeah, maybe. But I wouldn't be where God wants me to be in this season of my life. And Jesus has shown me and continues to show me that he is so much better. But we all have the temptation to say, hey, world, what will you give me? Like Judas, what will you give me if I trade him in? If I trade this Jesus in? You have to be convinced that Jesus is better. And that's not up to me, even though that's what I've given my life to. But you have, you have to be saturated in Jesus or you will go after the things of the world. And like Judas, you will constantly be asking, what will you give me if I betray Jesus? So the first thing is you have to be aware. It's not just a Judas problem. It's a you problem. It's a me problem. Every day we face the problem of betrayal. And every day we have to be reminded of how much more precious and beautiful Jesus is than what the world has to offer. And, and, and listen, I, I got to be careful here because I'm not trying to make you all a bunch of paranoid Christians. I have two beautiful daughters. They are beautiful humans. And when people see them, oftentimes they'll say things to me like, whoa, are you in trouble? I hope you have guns. Like all that kind of stuff. I was like, that does not help me. It doesn't help me. I'm already like on edge about what they wear and where they go and what they listen to and who they're with and what they're talking. And all that. And I probably got another 18 years of that. But I'm like, uh, I'm already on edge. I'm not trying to create a bunch of Christians who are kind of on edge and a paranoia like that. Here's what I mean. This is a way that a commentator says it. In the Christian faith, there should be on a Christian's conscience both a deep sense of spiritual security and an alert sense of spiritual insecurity. And then he uses 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which Paul uh, writes, to give the counsel on how this is done. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, if you think you are standing firm, meaning if you think you're bulletproof, if you think you're untouchable, if you think there's no way I can fall, if you think there's no way I can fail, Paul says, be careful, be careful. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. But here's the security in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. We are not always faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide you a way out so that you can endure it. So I'm not trying to get everybody all scared that you're going to fall away or betray Jesus, but I'm talking about the reality that's in all of us, that, that the world and our own flesh is always enticing us to trade in Jesus, to trade in his way of living for an empty promise. So be aware enough to realize the Judas in you. That's the first point. There's something else that we have to see about, about Judas, and this is actually in Luke chapter 22. Again, you don't have to turn there. Just write down Luke chapter 22, verse 2. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. 
Verse 3, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money, and he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now, here's something that might seem a little bit complicated, but I want us to see here that Judas is influenced by Satan. We have to understand um, that it's not just that Judas was a good guy and then like Satan like jumped out of a bush out of nowhere on him and just like got him like a, like a horror movie and just like possessed him. That, that's, that's not how this happened. You see, Judas had let Satan into his life in the normal, everyday things of life. It wasn't like some moment where he joined up with some kind of satanic cult and all the other disciples wore white robes and he was like in a black robe and like mascara and like a Marilyn Manson t-shirt and you're like, oh man, that guy clearly is a Satanist. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like that. He let Satan have influence in his life, and we know that because in John, as we've been studying John, we saw in John chapter 12, John tells us that, that Judas was a thief. If you remember the story in John chapter 12, uh, Judas is the one who's all bent out of shape about how expensive the perfume was. And he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, John tells us. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Here's the thing we need to realize Satan can have influence and impact in our lives, not just because we're sitting around trying to be a Satanist. It's in the normal, everyday stuff of life because you give him an opening. You let him in. For Judas, it was being a thief. It was this continued pattern, the slow drip of, of, of sin. It's not big, dramatic things where Satan is influencing your life. It's the subtle things. It's the places where you give him an opening. What you watch, what you listen to, what you talk about, the patterns of your everyday life that are little compromises here and there that has an influence where we invite him in. It's in our actions. It's in our attitudes. It's in our behaviors. If you think about um, how adultery works, for instance. So when, when people come to us as pastors because they want counseling for their broken marriage, it, it's, it's not a husband who says, you know what? I have an amazing marriage. I, I, I love my wife. She loves me. We have an amazing relationship. But it's just that one day I went to the grocery store and next thing I know, I woke up next to a woman. I have no idea how that happened. That's a pretty rare story. We don't get those kind of stories. How an affair works is a slow corrosion of the relationship. There's a slow drift. The, the husband doesn't love and care like he should, so the wife looks for that somewhere else. The wife doesn't respect or affirm, so the husband looks for that somewhere else. And you start these emotional connections with people who aren't your spouse. There's all these tiny steps and small drifts along the way, and all of a sudden you've created a new pathway, a new pattern with someone who isn't your spouse. That's how affairs happen. And that's how sin works. In the book of James, that's what James tells us. There's a pattern. It's the slow corrosion where you're enticed and it gives birth. And then you've invited something into your life. This is how Satan works. And Judas has invited him in by his lifestyle and his attitude. So the question for you and the question for me is, what are the invitations in your life right now that you are allowing evil to come into your life? What in your life is allowing evil in that will destroy you and the people around you? The evil that Judas let in destroyed him and it destroyed Jesus. 
What's the place, the small compromise? What's the small corrosion right now in your life? And whatever it is, you need to pray about it. You might need to stop listening to me right now and just pay attention to whatever tension is in you. And you need to say, God, there, there's something right now that, that you need to take this before Satan destroys me and those who are close to me. Maybe today there needs to be a conversation that you have with somebody who's close to you that you trust. And, and they're going to pray with you and they're going to fight with you and they're going to bear up underneath you in that. What's interesting to me here about this is that Jesus knew that Judas was a thief. It's not, it's not like Jesus was surprised by all the things these guys were going to do. And it's not like he didn't have the scouting report on everybody who was close to him. He knew he was a thief, but he still put him in charge of the money. So it means that for three years, every day, Judas would have a decision to make. He'd be walking with Jesus, and every day, Judas would have the decision, do I want money or Jesus? Do I want money or, 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 or Jesus? And every single day, we have very similar choices and scenarios. Will I believe that Jesus is better or will I trade him in for a lie? Our, our text in Matthew actually gives us a clue on how to do this. So Matthew 26, I know we're jumping back and forth a lot, but it says this. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad, and they began to say to him one after another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus said, You've said so. So if you remember the scene from last week, and if you missed last week, I just encourage you to go online and make sure that you watch that. It's an important message for our church, I think. Um, but if you remember that scene, there's that kind of low U-shaped table, and they would be reclining on each other as they ate. It's a very intimate setting. It's a very intimate meal. And in the middle of this dinner party, in the middle of this really intimate moment, Jesus just changes the whole atmosphere. And he drops this bomb on them, and he says, you know, one of you is going to betray me. And then the big question is, well, well, who? Who in the world would do that? And you'll notice a kind of slightly different angle on this account from our text in John. In John's account, it's only Peter and John who are recording asking. But in Matthew's account, it gives us a clue to kind of understanding how Judas got to where he did and how we can avoid it. And I'll, and I'll show you how. Matthew tells us that to a man, they go around and they all ask, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Until it gets to Judas, and Judas says, Is it I, Rabbi? Is it I, teacher? Now, here's the issue with that. Judas has spent three years hanging out with Jesus. He's seen him do miracle after miracle. He's heard incredible teaching. He's walked with him through incredible moments. But Jesus never moved beyond rabbi or teacher for him. And it could be that Jesus has never moved beyond teacher for you. Because it's about Jesus as, as Lord. It's about his lordship. 
I mean, you'll take Jesus as teacher. You're fine with that. You get some great tips and some ideas about life that could kind of help you down the road. I'll take Jesus as friend, somebody who's going to bail me out when things get really hard. But I'm not sure about Jesus as Lord. I'm not sure about his reign and rule over my life. I'm not sure about him being who I treasure or give my life for or who has ultimate authority over my life. I mean, like all of my life. I don't know if I want his authority over my financial life, or my sex life, or my professional life, or my family life. I don't know if I want every part of my life to submit to him. Every guy around the table says, Lord, Judas says, Rabbi, teacher, is it me? Jesus says, yeah, it's you. Because I've never moved from being teacher with you. That's why you can't break free from your greed. That's why you can't break free from your love of money. And for you and for me, take out money and put whatever the thing is in there for you. Take the thing that you will not put under the lordship of Christ. Because either Jesus is Lord of all in your life or he's not Lord at all in your life. We want this kind of a la carte experience with Jesus. We want this kind of experience and following and Christianity uh, where, where it's just like, you know, I will take this part of Jesus and I'll take kind of this part of Jesus, but I really want to keep this part of my own life and when I kind of, kind of keep. And we try to put together this thing. And you know what? That's great, but it's not Christianity. It's not following Jesus because that's not what he came for and that's not what he offers. Well, is it because he's got some kind of ego issue? No, it's because that other way will not lead you to abundant life. And he said, that's why I came. So that you would have that level of freedom in your life. So that you would experience life abundantly with me. And as long as you keep trying to add on all this other stuff, and as long as you won't put your life under me, you're not going to experience it. And some of you, you haven't moved from Jesus being just a good guy with good things to say and good ideas about life to being Lord of your life. I, I mentioned it before when I was praying at the beginning, but the headlines all week have really wrecked me. Um, between what I'm seeing in Afghanistan and Haiti and what I'm seeing happen to people is just, like, killing me. And I've probably spent an unhealthy amount of time watching news, reading stories, getting into it, and soaking in it. And I'm not getting into whose fault all the stuff is, and I know the situation is very complicated and, and it's terrible in both places. Here's why this is bothering me so much. We can go through life here in Gilbert, Chandler, Mesa, Tempe, wherever you live around here, and really not suffer much in life. And I'm not saying that life isn't difficult. And I'm not saying that there aren't hard things in the room. I'm not saying that at all. But it is easy for us, it's easy for me to have a Christianity, a following of Jesus, where it just becomes this kind of set of ideals for us. Like Jesus has presented us with some good kind of conservative ideas about life and you can make better decisions about life than some of your friends and neighbors, but it just kind of stops there. That is not Christianity. That is not what following Jesus is all about. 
It's, you have a different worldview with your neighbors, then that's great. But that's not how the Bible describes following Jesus. When Jesus is Lord, he is everything. He is what you give your life to. And for our brothers and sisters in places like Afghanistan, he's, you are, he's what you are risking your life for. It makes no sense for them to claim Jesus and have him not be everything. Why would you risk your life for something that's just on the margins or on the edges of your life? It makes makes no sense. And I'm not trying to take us on a guilt trip because guilt is a terrible motivator for one. And I know we like to be made feel guilty. It's like a religious experience for some of us. And I know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm not talking about some kind of guilt trip moment. I'm just saying that if I had to stand next to brothers and sisters on this planet who huddle in their homes, fearing for their lives because they smuggled Bibles into their villages so that they might just be able to read the words of God and risk death to share the good news of who Jesus is. And I have to explain to them, you know, sometimes church in the West, sometimes we just sleep in. Sometimes we just skip it. We have one moment a week where we can freely gather. We have an incredible facility. We have amazing people who just lead us in this moment and prep for this moment, and we can meet without fear of imprisonment. We can meet without fear of death. We can freely open the scriptures, and we can be together as the people of God. We can make as much noise as we want. We can raise a loud voice to Jesus, but you know, sometimes for us, it's just inconvenient. We just got other stuff going on. And I would have to stand next to my brothers and sisters And I got to explain to them, you know, sometimes people actually leave their fellowship. They leave their family because it doesn't meet their preferences. The songs might be too loud. The preacher's too boring. We actually have too many options to choose from in the West when it comes to church. Church, the world, the culture is not becoming more warm to Christianity It's becoming more and more antagonistic, and God will purify us from our casual Christianity because we will not survive as a faithful witness in this world to the next generation if we don't start taking Jesus seriously as Lord. And I I know if I keep preaching like this, I am going to have to take that job in business. So if you've... (laughs) If you have one available, just we'll talk afterwards. That's a little bit of a soapbox. And I, I got to tell you, honestly, it's for me. It's, it's for me as much as I want it to be for you and for all of us. It's for me. And I have to ask myself the question. I have to start. Have I moved from the place where Jesus, to, to the place where Jesus is actually Lord of my life? That's the question. Is Jesus everything to me? Where have I adopted a version of following Jesus that doesn't look like Jesus is actually Lord, where it looks like he's more of a teacher or more of an advisor or something that I've just added to my life? 
And the way that we do that, church, is we, we walk with him, we talk to him, you listen to him, you spend time with him, you love what he loves, and you're against what he is against. And God not only changes what you do, but why you do it, and he reorients the complete why of your life. He is central, and everything orbits around him. So often, Jesus is one of the satellites that orbits around what's most important to us in our life. So you and I need to take seriously what it is to have Jesus as Lord. Because Jesus tells us, and this is, this is serious, this is not me, this is the word of God. Jesus tells us the person who does not come to him in repentance and faith, confessing and trusting that Jesus is Lord. Jesus says, it would be better for you that you were never born. Because that person will spend eternity in hell, absent from the presence of God forever. A disconnection so bad that you're going to wish you were never born. And I realize this is not a popular topic. This is not like what the church marketing people tell you to talk about. It's not a popular reality in 2021. But it's one we take seriously because Jesus takes it seriously. And because he does, I can't just let that verse slide. And be very careful to think that you are the exception to the rule. Yes, God is love. And Jesus came into the world to save. Yes. But there is wrath from a righteous, holy, and just God to be dealt with. And it is dealt with fully and finally at the cross of Jesus for those who would believe. And so some of you really need to pay attention to this and you need to get real and you need to answer the question, have I come to the place where I have repented from sin, I've turned from that life and given my life wholly to Jesus? Because we all have a Judas in all of us. But there is hope and we're ending with this. There's hope because Jesus. Okay, now we're in John chapter 13. <laughs> And we're going to see how Jesus deals with the betrayer. Let me read this just real quick. I know we went through it already. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, so this is John who wrote this, was reclining next to him and Simon Peter kind of nudged him and he, and he said, ask him which one he meant. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish? Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus said to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him, since Judas had charge of the money. Some thought he was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor that was kind of common in his Passover time. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And then John's a brilliant author. He sets the stage. He says it was night, a very kind of ominous kind of setup for what we're going to see in the weeks to come. And it is true that some of you, you've, you've not dealt with that question or the conviction of sin. But I also know that there's some of you, you've not allowed yourself to experience the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. There's a prevailing lie that some of you are holding on to um, that Jesus couldn't possibly, couldn't possibly forgive you for what you've done. And that, that he desires to shame you or em, embarrass you. You see, in, in, the, 
In the East, it was customary for the host to offer the guest whom he wishes to honor with a piece of food. So Jesus is connecting himself with this custom in the culture, and he gives to Judas, as an appeal to his conscience, a morsel, a sign of communion. In this last moment, Jesus offers the bread. He's, he's adopting this cultural practice of extending honor to Judas. It's as if Jesus is saying, you, Judas, are the guest of honor. It's a moment of grace that he extends to the, to the enemy. Leslie Newbegin, who is a, a theologian, author, he says this, that final act of love becomes with a terrible immediacy, a decisive moment of judgment. At this moment, we are witnessing the climax of that action of sifting, of separation, of judgment, which has been the central theme in John's account of the public ministry of Jesus. So the finer, final gesture of affection precipitates the final surrender of Judas to the power of darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has neither understood it nor mastered it. Judas does not turn. In fact, we read in Matthew that Judas would later hang himself. So how does Jesus respond to the betrayer in all of us? I'm going to ask the band if you guys would just come up. We're going to get ready for this moment of communion as we go to the Lord's table. You see, the penalty for treason against the king is death. And for those of us who have come to Jesus in repentance and faith, the penalty has been paid in, in full. If not, if that doesn't describe you, then that penalty rests on you. That death penalty rests on you. But the good news for you today is that you're here and the Spirit of God is alive and working, and the invitation is open and available, and we believe that Jesus saves, so today could be a day of salvation for you. But I want you to notice here something really important. Jesus doesn't openly shame Judas at the table. He doesn't jump up at the table and say, him, I've known it all along. I was just waiting for the most dramatic moment ever to tell you guys who it was. It's Judas. Get him. He doesn't do that. And he's not going to do that to you either. The shame, the guilt, the penalty, whatever you're carrying, the embarrassment about your past, the regret, whatever it is that you carried in here, the invitation from Jesus is let me have that. Because I've already paid for it. I already bore it. I already had it all on me on the cross. And I'm just inviting you to let me take that. And in exchange, I'm going to give you life. And I'm going to give you freedom. I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to give you love. And I'm going to give you forgiveness. And so when you come to the table today, Christian, the promise is that Jesus will serve you the same way he served you. He's going to serve you with the provision of his death, the one time for all time sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future. His broken body in the bread and his shed blood in the cup. The betrayal is real. 
The death penalty on the betrayer is real. It must be dealt with. And no other king will give his life for those who have committed treason against him. No other king will nail that betrayal to a cross, pinned to his own body, forever canceling the debt and the record against you. When Paul, the Apostle Paul teaches the Corinthian church about communion. He talks about this night in 1 Corinthians. He says, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. So if you have the bread from the little cup there, take the bread. Paul says he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And so when you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. So go ahead and eat the bread. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. So you have the cup there. Saying, this cup is the new covenant. It's a new unbreakable promise between me and my people in my blood. And he says, whenever you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. And so drink. And then he says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time you, believer, come to the table, you're proclaiming that the death penalty over your life has been paid for in the life and death of Jesus. And the beautiful thing about this is on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he wasn't just aware of the way that Judas would betray him. He knew about all the ways that I would betray him. He knew about all the ways that you would betray him. He knew about all the mocking and he knew about all the failures and he knew about all the denial and he knew that that stuff wouldn't just stop at the cross. And yet still he responded by offering broken bread and broken body. The cup of mercy is shed blood to you and to me. And instead of crushing us for our betrayal, he serves us his crushing so that we might receive his comforting. And because grace has been extended to us in our betrayal, now we can offer forgiveness and grace to those who have betrayed us because we've been forgiven much, we love much. So for the follower of Jesus, eat and drink in remembrance and celebration. And again, if you're with us today and you've not yet come to Jesus, but there's something stirring in your spirit, we just want to invite you to really just pay attention to that tension. (laughs) And let today be the day that you would respond to the grace of God. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's our joy to make a loud voice, make a loud noise, and to celebrate our King. Let's do that now.